Well, good morning and welcome to Cornwall Church. Whether here in Bellingham, Skagit, Boca, or you're catching up with us online, we are glad to be together as we continue in this series called The Essentials of Faith, focusing on the book of Romans. Um, before we get too far into anything, I'm going to hit pause, and because I'm the student ministry pastor, I can do things that are a little bit more undignified than the, the senior pastor can. And um, the senior pastor, being Bob Marvel, is trying to get a phrase stuck into our minds. Pastor Kip tried last week, and if I'm being honest, it's been less than impressive. <laughs> and just to say I'm with you, I had to clarify to check, to double and triple check to make sure I had it right before I started leading us in a chant this morning, cheer this morning. Um, so to get this stuck in my head, in our heads, because this is not only true of the book of Romans, it's true what we're going to talk about today, we want to focus on this four-word phrase, from God by faith. From God by faith. Now, um, whether in Skagit here in Bellingham, the my right side, you are from God. Yeah, you see where this is going. My left side, you are by faith. So what I expect as the student ministry guy is volume, conviction, wholehearted participation. Lose yourself in the moment, friends, okay? From God by faith. Ready? Okay, that's great. I think you have more in the tank, people. Here we go. Yes. Okay, great job. Man, right out of the gate, you blew the five out of the water. They were great, but you guys crushed it. So well done. So from God by faith. And today... We are turning the corner in the book of Romans. If you've read into it, you know that the next three chapters are a little bit like, huh? Like you scratch your head a little bit. It's a new capsule in the book of Romans, but it's in the book of Romans. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul, the author of Romans, turns his focus to the Jewish people in Rome. And so he says things that are different. It sounds different. It's written differently. His audience is super focused. It is one people, the Jewish people in Romans. Now, what I want to say... It is a messy three chapters. And what I mean by that is there are very, very intelligent people who don't see eye to eye on different elements of these chapters. And there is still an incredible beauty in them. Um, I have been wrestling with one of the three chapters to prepare the message for today. And I'm here to tell you, this is the third message that I wrote. I thought I had one. God was like, no. Uh, I thought I had two. He was like, nope, not done yet, buddy. Three, and here's, here's the coolest thing. As I continue to read, as I continue to study, as I continue to prep, I feel like my clarity on this chapter has only grown. Do I have it figured out 100%? No. But what I get to share with you this morning, I believe, is entirely Paul's focus. It's, it's overarching. I believe it is entirely his focus to the Jewish people in Rome. Now, real quick, I want to warn us against two things, generally speaking. When we read the Bible and we come across an awkward or a mysterious passage that we're like, I, I don't know what that means. I don't even know if that's English, as a matter of fact. Um, we have a, this, this propensity to look past it, to ignore it, or to pretend that it doesn't um, exist as a part of the first eight chapters, in this case, of the book of Romans, because those are so eloquent, so powerful, so beautiful. And so you get to nine, and you're like, I, yep, I'm going to put that over there, because I don't know what to do with that. 
And first of all, don't do that. Why? Because Paul wrote the whole book of Romans. So for the integrity of Scripture, we cannot ignore 9, 10, and 11 as an essential part of the book of Romans. The second is that there, as I mentioned, there are some confusing parts. So my encouragement, dig in. There are some incredible commentaries online, maybe in your libraries at home. Dig in, seek to understand. And when you're like, I, I've tried and I just don't get it, it's okay. And the uncertainty or the remaining mystery doesn't need to undermine the fundamental truths that we know to be absolutely relevant and accurate about Jesus Christ. But that's also not a reason just to say, I'm just not even going to try. So lean in, okay? So that's my encouragement. All right, as I think about Romans chapter 9, I think it's kind of like St. Paul's Cathedral. I've been um, there in person in, two, in, in 2000 with my family, and this is a picture of St. Paul's from the outside. And I'm here to tell you it is massive. If you've never been, it is absolutely huge. And the detail on the outside of the building is impressive. I mean, it is old, and it took a long time to build. And it's impressive. You go inside, and you see even greater detail absolute beauty at every turn. You could get focused on anything. You could spend all day there and miss things. And then upstairs, there's a room called the Whispering Room. And this is amazing to me because, again, this was created so long ago, not with the same technology we have today. And you can stand in this room, and I could stand on one side. You could stand on the other. I could whisper something into the wall, and it would literally sound like I'm standing right next to you, whispering in your ear, and you'd be like... (laughs) You're catching it now. Um, It is amazing. And you could look at all the details of St. Paul's Cathedral, but you don't need to get to all the details to appreciate the beauty of it as a whole. And so today, we are not getting into all the details of Romans chapter 9, but we are getting into some of the bigger, grander themes that help us in our appreciation for Romans chapter 9. And my hope is that as you read Romans 9 this week, or reread it, that what we talk about this morning will help you in your understanding of what Paul is saying to the Jews in Rome. Okay, with that, we begin. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish... For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the glory or the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. In these five short verses, what we see is God's beautiful, amazing heart for his people. He's like, these are my people. I am one of them. I get them entirely. And if I could be cut off from my eternal inheritance, I would if that meant that they could be included. His heart for those who don't yet know Jesus is absolutely amazing and breathtaking. Let's take a quick time out. We have to ask ourselves, What's the condition of my heart to my family, to my friends, to my neighbors, to my coworkers, to those in our community that don't yet know the goodness of Jesus Christ? And if you're going, oh, if you feel like, man, my heart is not the heart of God, 
My encouragement, I'm not judging because I'm with you. My encouragement, though, is to pray and invite God to give you a heart, to help you to see, to help you to love, and to live differently in a way that shares Jesus with them. So his heart is beautiful. But then he highlights the incredible blessings that God has given the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. And these blessings, the intention is that they would move from one to another to the awareness that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah. And what Paul is implying clearly in this passage is that they are not there yet. They are not there. In the rest of this chapter, verses 6 through 33, God, through Paul, is trying to help the Jewish people see that Jesus is, in fact, a part of God's sovereign plan. He reminds them of God's sovereignty. Now, before we get too far into this, and he does this by walking down memory lane with them, he looks at their own history, a history that they knew well, and reminds them of God's sovereignty throughout. But before we get there, I want to clarify, what does sovereignty mean? Supreme overall, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, perfect, provider, incredibly loving, and outside of time. Now, those are great words that may help us grow in our understanding, but I want to share a picture with you. I was on, a way, on my way this past Thursday to meet a friend for coffee, and um, I saw something, and it was just so breathtaking. I had to pull over and take a pic, and here's the picture. Um, we live in a beautiful place, do we not? I mean, please don't ever take this for granted. And as I, sit and I, as I sat and I looked at this view... I think that this picture, this view, what it reflects is an incredible opportunity to stretch our understanding of God's sovereignty. Let me put out case in point. You see over here there's a sprinkler. Right here is a potato field. You have a barn, and, and the sun rise, um, the, the stars that are hidden right now, and then you have Mount Baker, and it's all its glory out in the distance. I'm going to focus only on Mount Baker, but what we're going to talk about with Mount Baker is absolutely true of everything else in this picture, okay? So on Mount Baker, God spoke and it came into being, or God spoke and created the earth to produce Mount Baker at some point in historic time. And then God knew how tall Mount Baker would be before it was even a thing. God knew how much snow we would have this past year on Mount Baker before this year even came to pass. God knows the snow accumulation ever since Mount Baker has existed. Okay? God sees it all. He knows it all. But then God also knows the people who've tried to summit Mount Baker, the people who haven't made it to the summit of Mount Baker. He knew their thoughts as they climbed. They're, oh my goodness, I'm not going to make it. He knew their discouragement. He knew their encouragement. He knew their excitement. He knew their passion. He knew their fatigue. He knew their thoughts, whether they spoke them or not. He knew whether they would speak them or not. He knew that he was putting air into their lungs so that they would go. He, would, he knew that he was leading them when it was dangerous. Like, no, no, you need to turn around. You're going to be disappointed, but you need to turn around. It is not safe. He knew that. He knew what happened in every climber's life before they started climbing Mount Baker. He knew what would happen after they climbed Mount Baker. Are we, we're tracking? God knows it all. God is outside of time. God sustains. God provides. God meets us in the midst. He knew every one of their names. He knows every one of the people's names who are yet to summit Mount Baker, but will at some point summit Mount Baker. God is sovereign. God is good. And much like he knows everything about Mount Baker and all the people that have summited, will summit, he knows 
the science of what makes potatoes grow, how much water they need. He knows when the sun rises. He calls the sun to rise. He, calls the, he controls the tilt of the earth, the speed of the earth, the galaxies. All of this is under God's sovereign control. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is all-present. And it is amazing. And my hope is that as we walk with the Jews through their history that points to God's sovereignty, that it wouldn't be daunting, it would be freeing. That it would open our eyes to just how good and loving God is. So let's take a walk with the Jews um, through memory lane, their memory lane. So we have, um, in verse 8, it points to his sovereignty in that his true children aren't children only, only of the lineage of Isaac. But he says, no, 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 my true children is anyone, are, any, are anyone, is anyone who believes in me. Anyone who comes to faith in me, those are the true, true children. And let me point out, this is incredible for most of us in this room because we're not of Jewish descent. So if it was the former and it was only from Jewish descent, none of us have a chance. And yet God in his sovereignty said, no, 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 not just by Jewish lineage, but by faith. Absolutely amazing. And then in, nine, in verse 9, he made a promise to Abraham and Sarah in there, while they weren't super old at the time, you will have a child. They ached for a child, they longed for a child, and then they had to wait for quite a while. And when they were real old, and far past the natural age of being able to conceive a child, God allowed them to have a kiddo. And it was through that son that the son of God would be born. Through that line that the son of God would be born. That is God's sovereign plan. And then in verses 15 and 16, it highlights that his sovereign choice was to show mercy to whom he would show mercy and compassion to whom he will show compassion. Therefore, it does not depend on man's effort, but on God's mercy. And we may look at that and go, uh-oh. Like it's, oh, what? Like that's not good. I would say the contrary. Romans 3 says that all of us are sinful, which means that none of us are deserving of God's mercy. There is nothing we could do to earn it, no amount of good deeds, good effort. We couldn't pray enough. There is nothing. And yet this highlights that because God is sovereign, because he is good in his sovereignty, because he is loving, he extends his mercy to every one of us. He extends his mercy and his compassion to whom he chooses to send his, to, to show his mercy and compassion. And from there, so that's, in essence, focusing on the patriarchs, the fathers of the Israelite people. And he moves forward into the Exodus story in verses 17 and 18 when he says of Pharaoh, I will show mercy to whom I show mercy, and I will harden whom I harden. And we'll, get, we'll come back to that part if you're like, huh, what is that? We'll come back to that, so sit tight. But he brings them back to the awareness of the Exodus story, which is so amazing. God's sovereignty was demonstrated again and again and again. They had been enslaved for hundreds of years. God sends Moses. They, after 10 plagues, after his sovereign intervention, they are freed from slavery, hundreds of years of slavery. Then they get to the Red Sea, and they're like, uh-oh, we don't know how to walk on water. Jesus did that. He hasn't come yet. So we're kind of in a bad spot. 
Moses puts his staff in the water. The Red Sea parts. They walk through. They get to the other side. Then God leads them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. God provides fast food for them, quail and manna, if you didn't know what I was talking about. Um, every day, quail and manna show up. Just boom, get what you need for today. God, we're thirsty. Moses taps a rock and out comes water. You see, God provide over and over and over and do what only a sovereign God could do. He provides again and again and again and in time leads them into the promised land. And so he is again taking the Jewish people who live in Rome back to this, this reminder, this awareness, I am sovereign. I am sovereign. And in verses 19 through 22, he says, in my sovereignty, it's that I know best. You think you know best at times and you don't. I know what's best. Now, you and I, we don't like hearing that. Um, how many of you have a son or a daughter? How many of you are a son or daughter? Okay, um, some of you know where I'm going with this. There are times with my children when one of them is bent on the fact that they're right. And I'm like, love you, buddy. You're not right. <laughs> you're, you're a little off. And he's like, no, no, no. This is it. And if you're a kiddo, you're like, nope. I am right, you are wrong, right? We've been there. And yet, as the parent, you have more life experience, you are more intelligent at this point. Um, maybe not forever, bad news. Um, but you are more intelligent at this point, and therefore you know that your son or daughter, past their deepest convictions, is wrong. And we don't like to hear this, but sometimes we are bent on the fact that we know better than God. And the reality of our life in this world is it's messy. And there's times where it's like, God, you're loving. But why are you allowing this painful thing to happen in my life, in my family's life, in my friend's life? Not to mention this world. Like, what are you doing? What aren't you doing? Why aren't you doing it? Like, you should be fill in the blank. And yet God says, I see it all at the same time. I am sovereign I am loving, I am trustworthy. And there are times when you and I, we just cannot understand that. And that's okay. But there does, we, it, it does require that we take a step back and say, okay, God, you are God, and I'm not. So he reminds us that he knows what's best. And then in um, verse 23, Paul shares the outcome of God's sovereign decisions, and that is that people will see and glorify him. And this is so beautiful because life only comes to life in a relationship with him. So it makes sense that all of his decisions lead people to a place where our eyes are open to him. And when our eyes are open to God, we can't help but praise him. Now, in case you're going, man, that sure sounds like God is an egomaniac. He wants to be the center of attention and praise by everybody. Like, what's that about? Let me remind us about verses one, or excuse me, chapters one through eight. Brief summary. Paul tells us it is only through a relationship with Jesus Christ, God's only Son, who sacrificed his life so that we may have life, that we can experience a right relationship with God the Father, that we can be recipients of his grace and his grace that forgives, redeems, and justifies, freeing us from the debt of our sin. It is only in a relationship with God or with Jesus that we are rescued from death into life. It is only because of Jesus that there is no condemnation for those who believe, and it is only because of his strong love that nothing can separate us from him, which Pastor Kip did an awesome job about covering last week. 
In his sovereignty, God is so good. There's a verse that I want to share with you, a couple verses. 1 John 4, 7 through 10. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God, because God is love. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I love this verse because it so explicitly states that God is love. Not God is loving, but God is love, meaning he is the source of love, period. There is no other source. It is only God who is love. And so therefore, we can conclude that it is only in love that God acts, there is nothing outside of love that God does. That is messy. That is hard for us to get because it's like, well, he's not doing this, and he's not doing that, and what about this? And it, it's not an easy thing to wrap our minds around. But our understanding of love is not perfect. But this scripture highlights that God's is, and God is only love. Then in nine, or chapter 9, verse 25, he says, It is an incredible love that I stretch my family lines. He says this through um, the prophet Hosea. I stretch my family lines not just to the Jews but to the Gentiles. So he's circling back again. He already, in essence, said this, but he's reminding the Jewish people, it's not just about you anymore. It's about any who would have faith in Jesus Christ. Again, very, very good news for you and I. And then in chapter 9, verse 25 to 29, he quotes two prophets, Hosea and Isaiah. And the interesting thing here is if you realize we've talked about the patriarchs, those who started, um, who were, in essence, the beginning of the, Israel na the Israelite nation. Then we move into the Exodus story. So there's this progression through the Old Testament. And then we land in the prophets. And the prophets had two jobs. One was to call people's God to return to him. Like, no, 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 don't do that. It's kind of like parents who are like, don't touch that. <laughs> Don't look at that. Run away. Like, they're saying, come back. What you're doing is dangerous. It's foolish. Come back to God. But at the same time, their purpose was to point to the coming of God in Jesus Christ. So I find it really, really interesting that there's this progression through the Old Testament that culminates in, an essence, saying, like, hey, remember those prophets? Their job was to, pull, was to call us back, but then also to point to the coming of the Messiah, to the coming of the Messiah. And right on the heels of quoting these two prophets, verse 30 through 33 says this, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. I truly believe that, that God has Paul walk through the Israelite history from the the patriarchs, to the exodus, to the prophets. And as he does that, he's dropping breadcrumbs to the point where he culminates, and in essence, he extends God's sovereign plan to include Jesus. He says that explicitly to the Jewish people in Rome. He's like, you're missing it. 
you are missing it. You want to be saved. You want to, be, to get righteousness by earning it, but that isn't the way it works. Your obedience to the law is something, but now it must be through faith in Jesus. And Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the one who gives us righteousness. In essence, he is saying, stop trying to earn righteousness or right relatedness with God the Father. And instead, through faith, receive the gift of righteousness. Absolutely amazing. And he says this with the hope that we read in um, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And it says this, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. I'm jumping ahead. Pastor Bill is going to talk about chapter 10 next week, so I'm not going anywhere near that. But that is the desired outcome. And God and Paul make no qualms about it. They long for the Jewish people to receive justification, to receive righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. So God is sovereign. And my hope is that this morning that we see that that is an incredible thing. That is a beautiful truth for our life. And that we can see that God is trustworthy. He has been throughout history, but he continues to be today. And the second is less pronounced. Um, it's a second theme of Romans 9. It's a little less pronounced, but is human responsibility. In essence, how do we respond to God's sovereignty? And speaking to the Jewish people in Rome in verses 1 through 5 and 30 through 33, we see that he wants them to respond differently because right now they're responding more or less with a calloused heart, with a hardened heart. And as we go into um, the middle as we talked about the Roman, or excuse me, the Exodus story, I want to focus there because I think there's a really cool insight that we can gain in verses 8 or 19, excuse me, 17 and 18. This is what it says. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Allow me to quickly recap the scene. So the Israelites, we already talked about this. They're in slavery for hundreds of years. God gets Moses' attention by a burning bush that's not being consumed. Moses checks it out. God gets his attention, and he says, Moses, I know you're comfortable here in the countryside, but you're going back to the big city, friend, and you're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to say, let my people go. And Moses is like, huh? Uh, can, can you find somebody else to do that, please? Pretty please? God's like, no, 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 you're my dude. You're going to go. And so Moses goes. And I imagine, I, I may be reading this wrong. I may be reading into this. I imagine when he stands before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time, he's a little bit like nervous, like, um, hey, so Pharaoh, uh, God says, let my people go. So can you do that? What do you think? And I wonder I think if, if Moses knew that texting was going to be a thing, he would really wish texting was a thing. Because what better way to passive-aggressively confront somebody than via text? And if he could text, maybe he would text something like this. Hey, buddy, uh, let my people go, or this is going to happen. Hashtag don't be dumb, bro. Hashtag God is sovereign. Um, <laughs> maybe. 
But the point is, is he goes anyway. He is faithful. He goes and he says, Pharaoh, let God's people go. Let them go. And Pharaoh says no. And as we read in verse 18, it says explicitly that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What it doesn't say, but what we read in Exodus 7, 8, 9, is that Pharaoh hardened his heart 10 times before it says that God hardened his heart three times. Ten times God showed up. Ten times God spoke to Pharaoh. Ten times God showed his sovereign power to Pharaoh. And ten times Pharaoh hardened his heart towards God. Now the question, what does that mean? And basically, to harden your heart is to see, to hear God move, to hear God speak, and to turn your back on him. To harden your heart is to to be stubborn, unyielding, unreceptive to God. And so he hardens his heart again and again and again. Then it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, or the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart three times. Now the question I have is this. Does that explicitly mean that God literally touched Pharaoh and hardened his heart? Or does it possibly mean that God turned Pharaoh over to his already hardened heart. Now, the reason I say that is there's a few verses that point me in believing the latter. Um, Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them over in, a sin- in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Psalm 81.12 says, so, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts, to follow their own devices. And Ephesians 4, 18 and 19 says, they, darken, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of greed. These verses highlight that God says, I am going to pursue you. I am going to show my mercy to you. I'm going to show grace to you. But if you persist and you are unrelenting and you say, no, 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 like, God, I hear you. You're you're convicting me. I I shouldn't be doing this. I should be moving in this other direction. But no, 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 I, I really want to do this. I'm going to do this anyway. God says, at some point, I will let you go. I will let you go. And again, remember, God does nothing that is apart from love. 1 Corinthians 5.5. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Consider the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son goes to his dad and basically says, I could care less that you're alive. Give me my money. I want my inheritance now. And I imagine the dad sees the writing on the wall. He anticipates what's going to happen. So the son takes his money. He goes off to a different country. He spends it on wild living. He wastes it partying. And and then at the end, when he's hungover, he's headfirst into the pig trough eating pig food. And in that moment, not in the moments in between, not when his, his resources were dwindling, but in the moment when he has nothing and he's eating pig food, In that moment, his loving father comes to mind. In that moment, he repents. He turns from and turns towards. And he goes back to his father in repentance. 
And his father welcomes him in, celebrates his return. Sometimes it requires, for us, we require that God says, go, indulge. But his hope is that in our indulgence, we will hit rock bottom and we will turn back towards him and experience his grace and his love. But in his sovereignty, God says, you may go. Ezekiel 36, 26 highlights what happens when we have a repentant heart and we come back to God and we say, God, our heart is hard. Please, please. And I will give you a new heart and it will be, or and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. It's as though sometimes we need the waywardness, the time in the foreign country, the time away from God in order to turn wholeheartedly to God. And unfortunately, from what we read in Scripture, this was not Pharaoh's case. This is not Pharaoh's case. But as God speaks to the Jewish people in Rome through Paul, I wonder, I wonder if they're catching on to this ironic connection between Pharaoh and themselves. You see, God moved and spoke clearly to Pharaoh multiple times, and he hardened his heart. And then God spoke clearly through the patriarchs, through the exodus, through the prophets about the coming of Jesus. And then these Jewish people in Rome, they heard about Jesus, and now they're hearing about Jesus all again through this letter to the Romans, through Paul. And they continue to harden their heart. There's a great irony in that to me. Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to let God's people go. And yet God's people are now hardening their heart towards God and not being receptive to Jesus, the Messiah, God's sovereign plan, plan to redeem the world. So what we see in Romans 9 is that God, through Paul, is trying to wake them up to soften their hearts so that they can do what Pharaoh did not, and that's to turn towards God, to trust him, and to yield their life to him. Okay, so what, what, what's that leave us with? That's Romans chapter 9. The first question is, God is sovereign. He has been, and if you believe in Jesus, the reality is, is there are a lot of different sovereign acts of God represented in this room through the different stories that we have. God is sovereign. He is still sovereign today. He is still acting in his sovereign and loving power today. So the question I have for us is, do you trust God? Do you trust God with every area of your life? Do you trust God? And if your knee-jerk reaction was like, well, of course, yeah. How does that affect the way you live every day? Because if the answer is yes, it does affect the way we live every day. And maybe you're sitting here and you're like, man, Scott, I wish I, wish I could trust him more. Is there an area in your life that you are holding on to and have been holding on to and trying to do it on your own and you're at wit's end, you don't know what else to do and it continues to stress you out? Maybe this is an opportunity to say, God, I'm gonna loosen my grip. I want to trust you. Would you show yourself trustworthy? So God is sovereign. Do you trust him? 
And the second is, what is our response to God? And my encouragement is, refuse to harden your heart. And I think there's a question that is very, very revealing. I love this question. It's a very simple question. But this will uh, reveal the condition of our heart, whether it's hard, whether it's soft, whether it's stubborn towards God, whether it's open towards God. And the question is, who are you relying on? Who are you relying on? Are you relying on your own strength? Or are you relying on God's strength? And sometimes, for me, it's like, okay, God, I trust you with these things, but this thing, I got this. I don't need your help. I'm good. I'm good. I can do this one on my own. But what I find that's a little bit ironic is when we refuse to let God into an area of our life, when we refuse to invite his sovereignty into an area of our life, what we do is we hold it really, really tightly, and stress builds, and anxiety builds, and fear builds, and these things grip us. And the irony is that it strangles life out of life for us. But when we yield to God, when we rely on God, when we do this, it has a way of bringing freedom to us, of bringing peace to us, and of bringing hope to us. Is this easy? Absolutely not. Our faith is messy. Our relationship with God is messy. And that's okay. Our lives are messy, and that's okay. But when we rely on God, it communicates that we know that there's a need for God. And when we know that there's a need for God, it's really hard for our heart to get hardened towards God. So we're going to wrap up our time together with a little activity in all skates. So if you are able to, please stand up. Um, if you are not, you can participate um, from a seated position. And um, as you stand up, I want you to stick your hands out and make fists. And as you do this, I would love to invite you to imagine the things, the areas of your life that you're like, these are mine. These are the things that I've been carrying. These are the things that I won't let God in on. These are the things that I'm like, no, 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 God, I got it. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's a relationship with somebody in your family. Maybe it's the stress of, of, of getting um, a raise at work. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's hurt in a relationship that means a whole lot to you. My encouragement, I'm going to pray. And then during the prayer, I'm going to invite you to open your hands as a symbolic way of saying, God, I want you to take this. I want your help in this, okay? Um, here's a little added thing. I want you to squeeze as hard as you are holding on to that on your own, if that makes sense. So if it's just like a little bit like, no, I got this, then you don't need to squeeze very hard. But if you're like, no, 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 I am not turning this over, then white knuckle it, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, I love you so very much. I thank you that you are sovereign. I thank you, God, that, that Jesus is a part of your sovereign plan to rescue humanity from ourselves, from our sin. And through a relationship, we experience so many blessings. And yet, God, 
I know for myself that there's plenty of times where I don't want to trust you or I'm not sure that I can trust you. And so I, I keep this area of my life away from you because I'm like, no, 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 I, I have it, Lord. I don't need your help. I don't even know if you would help if I gave it to you. And so we hold on to these things. And the longer we hold, the, the, the harder we hold. And the more we experience anxiety and stress and fear. And God, this morning I'm at a place where I'm acknowledging I can't keep doing this. And so, Lord, I open my hands to you as a way of saying, please help me with these things that I have been holding on to so tightly for so long. God, grow me in my ability to trust. Show me that you are trustworthy. Please help. Please help. And God, I thank you that you are sovereign, that you love us and you can do nothing apart from that love. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At this point, I'd love to invite you to continue to stand. Ron and the, the band are going to lead us in another song where we get to worship God with our voices, so I encourage you to do so loudly. <laughs>